You are listening to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. Today is the 28th of February, 2021. Welcome to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. I am your host, Tim Hampton. My Unusually Well-Informed guest today is Rohan Light. Rohan is a public interest technologist with a focused focus on data governance. Rohan's work is at the intersection of the great potential and potential for great harm that comes with big data, artificial intelligence, and blockchain technology. A comment on a recently unusually well-informed episode was, I listened for 40 minutes and my head was full. Well, I hope your brain has an appetite because Rohan is going to walk me through some mind-bending concepts related to data governance and the ways data, our lives, and the economy intersect. Rohan, welcome to the show. Uh, kia ora, good day, Tim. Um, great to be here. Same here, thank you. So as you know, I ha- I've promised my listeners some hard-hitting questions. And the first yep. is, uh, well, you've made a career looking at the intricacies of data. So let's settle the age-old debate of whether data is plural or singular. Do you say the data show or do you say the data shows? I say the data shows. Okay. Interesting question. I, I hadn't thought of it from that perspective. Uh, I've seen this word data or data, as we also pronounce it here, <laughs> yeah. shift uh, in vocabulary quite a lot. It's a quite a plastic word. So I don't correct people unless it seems like they are definitely falling into the wrong sort of category. So um, it's interesting that you say it's plastic. I've come to think of it as liquid because we often talk about data pools and data lakes and you don't refer to a water, you refer to a (laughs) bottle of water. So I I think it it certainly makes more sense colloquially the way you're saying it. So I, I do completely agree. And I I think that as a touchstone, we can say that probably Jean-Luc Picard didn't pronounce Mr. Data's name wrong. So we can (laughs) at least say that there's a possibility that data is an acceptable pronunciation. So thank you for tolerating that. Your LinkedIn bio is very hard to summarize. When you meet someone for the first time, how do you describe what you do? (laughs) It depends on on the conversation. Um, a very easy way in is I say I'm not good at anything, but I'm um, fairly average at lots of things. And uh, so in other words, I'm a generalist. I follow my nose um, from interesting place to interesting place. And after a while, when you get enough experiences like that, you, you, you do you are able to form a, a useful view on lots of things. So I'm a, a jack of all trades, if you want to look at it that way, um, or a, a bit of a renaissance person in the sense that um, I'm interested in lots of things and I keep going until I get an answer. How about that? That's good. Now, a lot of it does have to do with data governance. I've invited, I've invited the right Rohan Light. Yeah. Yeah. When you hear the term data is the new oil, um, yeah. do, you, do you agree with that comparison? I would be polite and then I would start the conversation that we need better metaphors. Uh, oil uh, is, hasn't had a particularly great positive impact 
uh, in sustainability terms, in terms of not breaching the environmental boundaries that we rely upon in our planet. Uh, I prefer the metaphor water uh, because water is necessary for life. You know, we die without it uh, between four to eight days of not having it, but that is not true for oil. So uh, also I think got to remember that data, if it emerges from the activities of a person, relates to that person, is about that person, and in some cultures is the person. And we don't really want to go too far down that commodification um, route with data. Fair enough. Um, I think the other thing, I, I, I think the idea of it comparing it to water is apt also because um, you're not burning it. I mean, there's this yeah. possibility of reusing it. There's also a possibility of polluting it and refining it and all that. So I, I think that's a really useful way of looking at it. When I think about data governance, at least in my mind's eye, it's sort of like browning a marshmallow. You know, too close, <laughs> too close and you burn up and too far away and you accomplish nothing. And I think, that, you know, there's so much uh, risk and reward in data. How do you balance these two things? That's great. Um, burning the marshmallow, I'm going to use that. Um, how do you balance it? You have to choose uh, which of the two you privilege, risk or reward. We've, as we've seen in the 20s, 2007 to 2016 period, we um, privileged reward, we chased innovation, um, lots of cool tech speak, and then um, probably from about 2014 onward, we started uh, breaking and started to look at uh, what happens if we proceed from the risk perspective first. And we're now in that, we're, we're fully in that mode of actually asking ourselves whether or not this thing is net useful. So one of the things about... Um an increasing amount of work is being mediated by digital labor platforms like Uber. And these platforms tend to be exempt or at least be able to, to skirt existing labor laws. How would you suggest regulation be adjusted to address this new relationship between labor and capital? Wow, uh, big question. The, this topic, I formed a view on this topic while working with the New Zealand labor regulator. I was looking at, um, I was looking at problems that we can't see because of frame blindness, largely because of the way we analyze these problems. So I'm always looking for those invisible things. And that's when I started looking at digital labor platforms. Uber is, uh, you know, it's a taxi company, it's a transport company. Um, that uses large amounts of data intermediation. Uh, it's probably best analyzed through the gig economy lens. The digital labor platforms, um, slightly different beast. They're largely algorithmically managed and they also have significant power asymmetries baked in. It's very, very difficult for individual workers to um, obtain obtain enough uh, um, protection from the harms and risks that come from it. 
trying to get back to your question, I would say um, the main point from a particularly useful article I read was that the regulation of platforms needs to move from testing-based metrics to usage-based metrics. So the testing-based approach, um, we figure out all the things that we don't want to see and do want to see and then run a test and then see what we get, um, which gets this episodic uh, regulation, but with very long periods between those episodes. Uh, the usage-based metrics is what we're uh, now used to as data and digital consumers. We're used to being in a continuous stream of data and having um, lots of updates. So I think that's the shift that needs to be made for the regulator to catch up with digital labor platforms. So that's interesting. Let me let me pull on that a little bit to see if I understand it. So you're you're suggesting that, um, you know, you're being humble and that you're not suggesting you have the answer, but what you're suggesting is that there ought to be a more frequent adjustment of regulation based on the data that come from these platforms? Yeah. Yeah. The, the issue is, of course, that the platforms will erect a, an intellectual property barrier mm -hmm. between themselves and the regulator. And as we've seen the last 10 years, there's the, the Silicon Valley trope of, yeah, we're good. We will regulate ourselves, nothing to see here. Um, <laughs> and we now know that. We know that that doesn't, doesn't exist, but also we know that it can't exist. So it is, it's a fantasy. Um, the place to look for, the place that I formed my view on this was the International Labour Organization, which in its operating model, conceives of the relationship between business government and the worker as a tripartite uh, relationship mm -hmm. to manage and work within. And I, I like that. It's a good way in. So what it, what it does is it has all the major parties in play and encourages those parties to figure out a way to um, get the, the market regulated. Now, I'll just very quickly say uh, I'm pro-innovation as a general rule. Uh, I work in risk, but I'm pro-innovation. So I actually want to see regulation of these platforms largely because they smooth out transaction costs and transaction costs drives firm behavior. Well, that brings me to my next question because I do recognize that you're, although you're, you're um, in the governance space, which implies a little bit of... Uh, restricting what innovation uh, innovative companies are trying to do but you, there's also a huge upside to living in a world awash with data what are what are some of the upsides you see what are some some of the potential uh what what is some of the potential that comes from having all this data around oh crikey <laughs> um my mind went immediately to there's a greater opportunity for self-actualization how about that it's just drop that right in the mix. Okay. So um, lots of good data gives us finer control over the decisions that we want in our lives. Once we get finer control over, over those decisions, our agency increases. As our agency increases, our 
abilities as people, our capabilities grows. As that grows as individuals, we enrich the communities, society and economy within which we work. So it all comes down to the question, what does this new data enable me to ask? It's all about questions. That's, a, that's an interesting perspective. And I want to get into that a little bit more when we talk about individuals and companies and how they interact with data. Um, you drew my attention to the book, Why Information Grows by Cesar Hidalgo. Um, the book, argue, and, it, and it's, it begins, and I will confess I've read summaries. I've not read the whole book, but um, it begins with the premise that physical objects are made of information because they embody physical order, like a reversal of entropy, which is a very mind bending idea. Can you get a little bit into that and talk about what the implications of that are? Yeah, uh, to your first point, I read Adelgo after reading a summary and it has taken me about three years to get my head around Hidalgo. Oh, good. And I'm not behind. <laughs> yeah, it's look, it's hard. It's hard. This is part of what we have to do as non-tech individuals is we have to get our heads into this space. We have to form a view. Uh, in the end, I, got a, I had to read another physicist before I could f fully process Hidalgo. So um, Hidalgo, has, as, as you identified, um, separates um, information from, the, from a statistical physics perspective from the normal or current definition we have of information, which comes from the work of Claude Shannon. Um, and Claude Shannon's work uh, and a couple of other fine fellows whose name um, escapes me, their work laid the basis for our current AI environment. However, Hidalgo um, and Shannon have different uh, treatments of entropy. I'm not going to go into entropy right now. It's a, it's a killer concept and it melts the brain. So we'll just stay with information. Sure. But it's this, they're seeking to understand why in a universe where uh, in information is rare that we have lots of it here on Earth. And then he talks about this whole concept of um, information as physical order and he uses his famous example of of a Bugatti, which is worth multiple millions um, before it hits the wall. After it hits the wall, it's worth nothing. And yet the atoms are still there. They're just reordered. Uh, it is um, just get it, trying to get back to your point. The reason why I like Hidalgo is that he enables us to get clarity or distinction between information and message. So this is when in the world of message, that's Claude Shannon's work. And once we are able to separate information from message, we can then get a clearer sense of meaning. So we have this three-part analytic information, message, meaning. And it's in that meaning area that we find misinformation, disinformation, what is mm. truth, what is not truth, what is good evidence, what is not good evidence. And that's the messy stuff. Now, data governance has to be effective in message and meaning. It's, so ergo, it is very handy for us to assume Hidalgo to be true. So 
the the misinformation and disinformation. I've seen you on LinkedIn try to sort of portmanteau these things into dismissinformation or misdisinformation. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> you put them together and and I think that you're trying to wrestle all the um, failures and abuses of information into one concept. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Uh, yes, dismissinformation is the portmanteau. Okay. Uh, and I um, came across it when I was reading this great article. Um, her, the author's name escapes me. Um, but she was basically asking the question, look, you know, who benefits from um, disinformation? Who, who benefits from misinformation? And in her analysis, she was showing how, how different aspects of truthfulness and deceit interact. And then after a while, in the, in the, in the, in the mind of that casual observer, it just all becomes one. And then I identified that one of the actions of the disinformant is to attack the foundation of meaning. And one of the ways they do that, actually, is they dismiss um, charges or accusations of disinformation. So, mm. so they'll they'll have a they'll have a crack at you. Um, and I found that's really really interesting. Also, um, the reason why I use a portmanteau is I'm mainly interested in uh, the linguistics and lexicography of it, mainly because language is plastic; it's fluid. Um, we use it in lots of different ways and it changes over time. And we have to be aware of those changes. This comes back to your data or datum question. Um, once we get to a certain point in the AI and the data science world, we have to get highly specific. We can't be hand wavy and fuzzy. However, prior to that and after that point, we have to reintroduce, we have to integrate the, the meaning into general society. And so that's why I use these linguistic techniques. Uh, and now I've forgotten your original question. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fair. But maybe um, maybe we'll come back to it. I, I think I have a follow-up question that's rattling around in my head, but let's stick with Hidalgo right. for a second. And right. he, he also outlines the concepts of firm bites and person bites. What do these terms mean? Yeah, great. Okay. Um, so a person bite as Hidalgo defines that as the maximum amount of knowledge and know-how that a human nervous system can accumulate. So does it matter if, um, if we're Stephen Hawking's or not? It doesn't matter if we're a colossal brain. After a while, we have a limit. There is a limit to what we can stuff into that brain, no matter how amazing we are. And that's Hidalgo says that's a quantization limit. People, we do not have people with the um, brains the size of planets. The same reason why there aren't six-foot cockroaches. There are limits to our physical um, structure. So, the um, he uses these uh, he uses these uh, definitions to take us through this whole concept that we as humans, where we are physical order we are composed of information um, but we are quite amazing in the sense that we when we build stuff we create things in our mind first 
So in other words, we do a whole bunch of processing in our central nervous system first. And that's what he calls knowledge and know-how. For instance, you, you spend, you know, 13 plus years on your PhD, lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of knowledge. Or uh, you um, do lots of different things via professional, um, you know, just your, your career. That's lots of know-how. So you know how to, I know how to do lots of things. I don't have much knowledge. I have lots of know-how. So then he goes, um, the second quantization limit is the firm bite. So it's the same thing. A, an organization can only hold so much knowledge and know-how. And after, after a, a firm or an organization exceeds its ability to hold this knowledge and know-how, it has to form networks. So the same reason people form social structures to distribute knowledge and know-how, firms do the same. And this, it's the firm bite thing that takes me back to Coase, Ronald Coase and transaction economics. And that's what I'm really interested in. I'm thinking, well, there has to be a way that we can structure ourselves better so that um, our firm bites are larger. So even though there is a quantization limit, it doesn't mean that we, it, it is never going to um, change. We can, we can get smarter when we know this. So the, um, and coming out of Crikey I've worked in public service, I've worked in publishing, hospitality, farming, lots of different organisations. And I've had a sense, an intuitive sense of how smart or how not smart these organisations are. One thing that Hidalgo does really well is he analyzes large organizations, particularly bureaucracy. And coming out of the public service, one constant criticism is, oh, you guys are too big and too slow. And to a large extent, they're, 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 they're accurate, they're correct. And this has been fairly well analyzed in different parts of the management literature. But Hidalgo will say, that extreme bureaucracy generates large networks connecting many people, but with few person bites. That's <laughs> important. Yeah, so these, these are large things, but they're largely inert in terms of knowledge and know-how. So and most of the person bites available are consumed by internal procedures. Mm. And, That's very um, interesting. Yeah, isn't it? It tells us that there's, uh, there's a, there's, there's this, there are levels, there are issues of, there are qualitative issues within our organizations that are preventing us from doing things and ensuring that we do certain things. Now, this isn't to be, this is just normal. You know, humans, humans are fundamentally structure building creatures. So we're always going to build organizations. I'm interested in building smarter ones. And, and that's why I read Hidalgo. So this is interesting. So let me, let me see, let me, let me just explore this a little bit with my own curiosity here. So th there's this idea back in the day, and I don't know if it's true, but they used to say that if you hit the uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex on the tail, it would take a few seconds for that signal to reach his brain or longer than, you know, we burn our toe, we know it right away. But because the dinosaur is so large, it takes a long time for the signal to reach the brain. So a firm bite could have the same problem. It could be so sprawling. And this is this sort of comes back to the idea of how data information meaning are transmitted through a firm bite. 
And so that, so I think what, and, and well, let, let's back up a little bit and talk about uh, networks and trust, because one of the concepts Hidalgo get, gets into is theoretically, if you're all in the same organization, there's more trust there. It's easier to get things done without wrestling with that. Um, how does that connect to the concept of networks or is that the same thing? Uh, uh, trust it can be analyzed as uh, a dimension within networks. So he, uh, he talks about high trust and low trust um, networks, uh, makes the distinction between networks that emerge from familial societies to networks that emerge in open societies, uh, and then basically goes on to say that the, the open society has a lower cost of establishing trust-based links. And I think that's, that's a really important insight. This is one reason why we chase trust in data. It's, it's not just because there are, human, there are justice and human rights elements to it. It's because if we, if we really think this through, we, we should be able to land on a better um, organization and structure. And we've seen this with the digital revolution anyway. The whole reason why we have um, a whole bunch of harms related to Googles and Facebooks is, in fact, they actually innovated really, really well. They've, they, they chased a whole, lot of, a whole lot of um, costs out of their structure, they, you know, largely by um, removing a lot of bar uh, barriers as well. But um, I'm off my point. I know that. So I'll just come back to um, Hidalgo and trust uh, the reason, yeah, and I'll restate that point, we're interested in firm bytes simply because we want to be able to get more trust into our data system. That's from my perspective anyway. So um, I, I want to see if I can connect a couple of things you've said earlier. Uh, one is um, that governance is not merely a restriction on a company, but also a way to streamline things. And I think this may touch on what you just said about, uh, I'll use the word faith, you didn't, but that people need to have faith in the data to act on it. And that if we can dispense with the effort of, of being cynical and being convinced and all that, then, with it, then, then trust can actually go a long way to streamlining things and governance can underpin that trust. Yep, absolutely. Um, it, as trust, is, is interesting if we conceive of trust uh, in terms of distance high trust organizations can teleport they can hop they can move very very far distances in very short time with not much energy output low trust organizations have to walk everywhere and carry everything it takes the majors and the um buddy hell of i've forgotten the question again Oh, uh, well, I think I was trying to tie your original um, comment about governance, um, streamlining uh, how communication is done and, that, and because it allows people to have faith in the information they get. Oh, right. Yes. Um, yeah, that faith in the information thing is quite interesting. This is, again, what the disinformant attacks. They, they attack the, the trust and the faith that we have 
in that in that organ in that uh, in that data. I think one thing with um, this is this is an odd element when you're in data governance. After a while, you you know you're no longer analysing the data issue. You're analysing the social issue, um, and one of the reasons why. There isn't much. Um, there is not as much faith in data as there can be, as people don't have faith in themselves and their own ability to work with it and process it. So it's seen as something uh, either dangerous or uh, or um, uh, inaccessible, or it's entirely banal. Like they have data with their phone plan, and how much data have I got left in my phone? And it's just so hard to grasp the topic. This is one of the reasons why um, we have this crisis in trust and faith. Well, it definitely is a, a, a field where there's so many different directions to look and, and it's all so new. It's no wonder that, um, as you point out, governance or even um, regulators have a hard time keeping up. But, you know, individually, we have a hard time keeping up as well. And I, I want to explore what I think are related things. Um, that you raised earlier, and that is a distinction between uh, information and meaning. And I think that that's really, I believe that's the literacy you're talking about for individuals being able to take data and, and construct meaning from it. Yeah. Um, yeah, pretty much. Uh, the, every, the everyday person um, doesn't see information in the sense that Hidalgo does. Um, they they are, their world is full of messages, um, but they take those messages largely at face value. It's this world of meaning. What do we, what do we make of this, that things go crazy? Um, part of that is um, folk haven't worked with enough data scientists, uh, which is a silly thing to say, but the, the more you work with them, the more you, start to pick up the disciplines that is involved with working with data, especially, and this is what it comes down to, making claims. Uh, and the phrase that I use in my risk work is I look for quote unquote excessive truth claims. And excessive truth claims lives in this world of meaning. We've taken a message and we've interpreted it and we are basically pushing pushing the boundaries of, of, of what we can actually reasonably infer from this piece of evidence. And we're saying crazy things. And that's the excessive truth claims uh, includes speculation. It includes misinformation, disinformation, just guesswork, um, all sorts of stuff. In my risk work, I would analyze that generally as saying we are in a high uncertainty environment. And when we are, in a high uncertainty environment, we are also usually having some sort of threat response. And so the task then is to find the key points of uncertainty and reduce that uncertainty as fast as possible, as directly as possible. And that we chuck a lot of facts at the issue and the response surfaces the person's frame. And once we can get a sense of their frame, we can figure out how to um, communicate with that person. So yesterday I interviewed Anna Crowley Redding, who, who has been a journalist. And I asked her, you know, what 
she suggests we do about this, this, the, this problem with fake news, which seems to be wrestling with the same type of problem you are, which is people, it's, again, it's dismisinformation and, and how people sort through to the truth. And her, her uh, I don't want to say I, I absorbed the entire suggestion, but certainly she said that know your sources, right? Um, that, yeah. that if it just comes on Facebook and you don't know exactly the, orig- the original uh, source of that information, you need to think through whether you can trust this new source of information or not. Is, is that part of the process for data governance is recognizing where the data is coming from and whose agenda is behind the collecting? Yeah, uh, completely. Uh, it is, there's a, a cleaning and a ordering and a right sizing function that data governance does. The organizations are just awash with data, undifferentiated. Um, the more, when we look at the data uh, in, in the round, we find lots of different elements to it. Um, after a while, I'm going to use that word, our epistemological foundation crashes. We, 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 just, we just don't know. We, you know we, we learn from our parents, we learn from our friends, we learn from school, we learn from things we read. Ultimately, we are confirmation bias machines. We seek information that um, confirms our existing views. And oh, sure. this, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. And then, as we, this is what we see in the um, political and climate arenas, everyone is choosing their own evidence. Now, um, it's a, it's, I think it's a fast way for humanity to destroy itself. So uh, let's not go down that path. And I think one <laughs> of the elements of data governance is to say, you know what, this, this looks okay, but it's empty calories. Mm-hmm. It's not going to do us anything. It's got a, what I would define as a low information value. It doesn't really tell us much. Um, it might be lots that oh, I should explain that. You can have a large amount of data and it tells you nothing. You can have a tiny amount of data and it tells you huge amounts. What it comes down to is our willingness and our ability to learn and our willingness and ability to discipline our thinking processes. Now, who disciplines their thinking processes? This is, this is not a common thing. And here we see another use case for good data governance. It tells us what's, what is safe to think with. Can I wheel back to, I believe you said epistemological. What does yeah, that sorry. mean? No, no. <laughs> what does it mean? It's a foundation for our understanding of the world. Okay. So I presume it's, is it a science or is it a philosophy or? Uh, it is a philosophy philosophical word word however it because it touches everything it seeps into everything okay so it's like uh, an area study then yeah so like think of uh, astronomy and the early days of science the copernicans had one epistemological basis mm-hmm. and the ptolemaic astronomers had another now we know them. We know we roughly say, does the does the sun revolve around the earth, or does the earth revolve around the sun? And in those early days, 
uh, of astronomy, the data could be used by both sides to prove their argument. So their epistemological foundations were different and they were using in the, in science and data to stress test those foundations. Now, one group, the Ptolemaics, had their world destroyed and the other group had their world confirmed. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the tricky things with this whole issue around data and information and meaning and disinformation and misinformation is that your worldview can be rocked seriously and quickly and how we respond to that. um, It's a very deeply personal thing. It's one of the reasons why we can see um, the persistence of that anti-vaxxing climate, denial all this sort of stuff it all it large to a large degree it comes back to an internal shock and the person goes no way i am not accepting that and then they won't full stop right. thank you so let's go back to hidalgo a little bit because i think we were on the cusp of i was on the, lear- the cusp of learning more about um what to do with some of his ideas and one of the things he talks about is the the that you can analyze a country's capabilities by its outputs. That that it comes back to that Bugatti idea that you could out you could export a wrecked Bugatti, and it and it has very little value. But a pristine Bugatti, just like a a well sorted stamp collection, is going to have way more value than just all the stamps in a, a shoebox. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and that's undifferentiated stamps. And so it doesn't have the complexity that, if I'm interpreting this correctly, the complexity yep. would be in a well-sorted stamp collection. And so you could export yep. that at a higher value. Yeah. And so Hidalgo talks about how you can analyze the, the wealth of a nation by the complexity of its outputs. Can you, can you delve into that a little bit? Yeah. I really like your stamp, uh, your stamp example. Thank you. Because, yes. A, a bunch of stamps shaken in a box, uh, low, low information, uh, you know, low physical order. But when they're all laid out, uh, telling a particular story, that's where there's a lot of information. So Hidalgo, um, yeah, basically he, he, he's looking at the, the productive basis, bases of, of, a, of, of society, of a particular nation. Uh, the nations that dig stuff out out of the ground and send it to other countries to make into cool stuff that comes back to the original country is the thing he's trying to get his head around. He's trying to understand why is it that um, uh, raw material producing nations can't make cars. And um, his, his analytic, the person bite and firm bite uh, analytic basically says that the countries that export lots of cars and computers have a ton of knowledge and know-how internalized in highly complex networks and that they're um the trust thing is a bit in this situation is a bit of a um it's a it's a a bit of an illusion here we're just mainly looking at the ability of us of a nation and society to make um high quality stuff quick example new zealand 
made its money by putting um, frozen sheep on ships and sending them around the world. Uh, and we still, to this day, are a largely you know, agrarian um, export uh, or, uh, country. Back in the 70s and 80s, we shut down our locomotive, our railroad, our railway industry. And our, the railway industry is a really good example of um, high knowledge and know-how embedded networks producing really cool things uh, and there's, there's a whole bunch of historical reasons why our trains were so good but back in the 70s and 80s we thought um, we, we jumped boots and all into Thatcherism and Reaganism and said ah oh, no she's right we'll just buy them and uh, as a result we lost the ability uh, of our society to maintain these high quality knowledge and know-how links and now um, are much poorer as a result. So one of the interesting things that flows from that that Hidalgo gets into is, is the analysis one can do. And an analysis, again, comes back to this idea of the power of data, that you can analyze an economy and say, all right, so we make sheep um, and we export flowers. There's not a lot of overlap between the two necessarily, but if we had um, a system that processed sheep and processed uh, wheat or whatever, then some of the machines at least would be in common and there would be the ability to hopscotch from one technology to another, the more complexity you have in your economy. So it's almost like a, a, a virtuous cycle where if you introduce complexity to an economy, you can keep building on it and finding easy, easy, I guess a country bite, right? That, that, that the amount of knowledge uh, compressed into or, or um, embodied in a nation, the more you have, the more opportunities you have within that nation. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. Um, I like that. The uh, Coming back to those quantization limits, we can only stuff so much knowledge and know-how into people, and we can only stuff so much knowledge and know-how into a firm. We want our people and our firms to be smarter, um, there are, but the quantization limit tells us that it's how we organize ourselves and it's how we um, manage, I think, what you identified, the adjacent opportunities that we have. Um, we don't, you know, <laughs> it's actually a bad example. Um, you don't go from sheep to space, uh, <laughs> space technologies in a leap, even though New Zealand has. Yes, obviously. <laughs> Yeah, we now... We, we're in the space race. We put satellites up there. I don't know how that happened. Yeah. But um, one of the, um, it goes to the point that in order for us to put um, people in space, we actually had to build an entire um, space industry uh, in a, you know, a somewhat small New Zealand town, uh, as it were. So we actually had to bring in a whole heap of stuff. It didn't emerge natively from that small, tiny town. Um, we, 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 we had to go and invest into it. So that, that's a, a fascinating example. And it's a counterexample to the thing that Hidalgo talks about, which is <clears throat> there's a reason you have Silicon Valley and you can't have Silicon Valley anywhere you like, because the person bites, the people who know how Silicon Valley works all live. And he talks something about a, a, topo a topocracy, this idea that you can, 
have a meritocracy, but it's restricted to a given geography, right? So a topology. And yet I think what you may be arguing or what, what this may suggest is that a government who wants to create prosperity has a legitimate case for building person bites and firm bites, even if it doesn't break even financially, there, there, there should be some contribution from government to get that kindling going, to increase the complexity within a nation. And you can target that, right? It wouldn't be yet another sheep school or another sheep farm or another sheep processing plant because you don't get the same return. And yet probably that's where it goes because those are where the lobby money comes from. New Zealand's probably healthier in terms of lobbies than a lot of countries, but it, the money tends to go where the money already is, right? Yeah, for sure. Wow, there's a whole bunch of stuff in there. Um, uh, investments need to go into an adjacent higher value processing element. We can't just drop. Um, we, you know, you, the, thing, the, the thing with governments, especially in the 70s and 80s, uh, and the way they were trying to stimulate economies, you know, expensive failures. We know also just going back to your original point in Hidalgo, he was, he was basically saying, why did Silicon Valley succeed in a, a proto hub uh, over on the other side of um, the, the States fail? And uh, one of the things that he uh, identified was the impacts of um, ideology. In, interestingly enough, hmm. um, and how we choose, and how we choose to conceive of ourselves as we organise ourselves. I like what I like about that is it tells us that actually, what you know, what we can actually choose. We none of this is really that foreordained. There is path dependence, yes, but we we can think our way through that. Um, going back to your point around where does the investment go, um, I think what I'm seeing, especially here and in most parts of the world UK is doing a really good job of this as they're figuring out when and how to stimulate uh, this virtuous cycle of getting better at producing complex products um, the thing we still see though is that once a person drops into the public service let's say for more than five years that they they become institutionalized and so um, their ability to conceive of innovation outside of the government um, environment just degrades, just degrades over time, unless that person is pushed to the very boundary of, the, of that large public sector organisation. And the reason why is because they're exposed to a whole lot, a whole, uh, lot more different use cases and they're seeing where things are, are going to fail and they're going to see, they see where the, the ideas coming from public uh, public agencies have a higher chance of success or not. So I don't know if, I mean, you're, you're a resident of New Zealand. Uh, I'm in Canada. I don't know if, if Electron Rockets, I believe is the name of the company we're talking about, if they've received a lot of go government money or if they just managed to build the company with funding from private enterprise. Do you know if there's public funds going into that uh yeah i think it's um rocket labs is the name labs, uh, i, I think it started with um it started with a kiwi uh who knew we could do better 
who um, pressed the flesh enough and and cut enough deals to get enough cash to encourage uh, government to uh, to invest. And so it is, it is, it is, I think it's a good example of a um, private public uh, partnership, but it definitely started with, it did not start in government. The reason I, the reason I ask, and, and it actually may be irrelevant. Um, I was trying to um, balance two um, impulses. One is to introduce more complexity into an economy, into a country. And the other is that idea of adjacency that we've both identified as being important, that something could be so far from what the existing firm bites and person bites in a country are familiar with, that it's out in the cold and it may never bridge between other adjacent um, skills. And so I guess what I'm getting at is, do you, do you think that that was, if it was government money, was that well spent? Or do you think that it would have been better off you know, if you had a clean sheet of paper to uh, uh, be something that's more adjacent, like restoring the train building industry, for example, is something that already had person bites and firm bites in the country. Okay, I would, I would say in, uh, invest in the adjacent rather than the new, um, just as a general rule. Um, firm bites, uh, person bites and firm bites, uh, there's some sort of deeply innate organic element to it. You have to grow it, I think. How, how about that? Like a plant, like a plant. We have to, you have to care for it and grow it over time. And a lot of it is language and culture uh, dependent. It's where the data governance thing comes in. For example, here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, if you're going to turn up and um, talk like, an arch uh, Silicon Valley dude, we, we, we're not going to listen. We're, we'll, actually, we'll be very polite because we're Kiwis. <laughs> but it's not going to go any far. It won't convert to far. meaning. Yeah, exactly. We, we're not going to hurt your feelings, yeah. but we're, we're not going to take it very far because it's not addressing some really key epistemological um, foundations that we have. Interesting. So there is the sense that this is why there was this wave of techno solutionism in the mid, in you know, 2015, and you saw a whole bunch of um, uh, clever engineers turn up and go, "Yeah, we're going to solve your problems," but no, the problems don't get solved because they can't be solved by technology. And it all comes back to this desire to learn. This is what this is what fascinates me about data, is that it, it's this raw material of learning about who we are and changing ourselves and changing our environment. But it all comes down to what we choose to uh, accept. So we talked, we've touched on the idea of how a firm, a company can be more adaptive. Um, we've touched on the value of it. I don't think we've touched too much on specifics on how a company can transmit data within more quickly, meaning within more quickly. Um, one of the concepts of a firm bite is it can only grow so big before the friction within becomes greater than the friction of just connecting with another firm. An exception, an exceptional case are both Tesla and SpaceX. Now I will confess I'm kind of an Elon fanboy, you know, with limits. I, I can see some flaws, but um, 
you have to be in awe of what SpaceX and Tesla have achieved. And they are both extremely vertically integrated companies. They, they tend not to collaborate with other companies because they find other companies too slow. So somehow they've mastered the art of uh, transmitting meaning and information within. And what's interesting to me is that they collaborate between the two, SpaceX and Tesla do collaborate, for example, on the materials that go into vehicles and space vehicles. Um, is this an exception to what Hidalgo's saying or a special case of what Hidalgo's saying about person bites um, and, and, and networks with other companies? I don't think so. The clue for me was when you said uh, Elon and co do their own thing because the other guys are slower. Um, as soon as I heard that, I thought, all oh, right, there's a, there's a differential in the speed of learning within um, our Tesla and SpaceX and the, the companies that they want to work for. Um, I don't really know too much about the details of the two companies. Um, I know that Hidalgo in his analytic, he looks at the Red River complex in Ford, which was a mega factory back in the day. And he said, why don't we have more mega factories? Um, that suggests that there is a limit to Tesla and SpaceX's ability to maintain full independence. So they're not going to end up as a mega factory there. Uh, yeah. And they will have had a whole bunch of connections into the wider uh, economy. It's just, I don't know the, the degree within which they've bought all that in house. However, um, uh, the larger they get, um, the larger an, an organism gets, it doesn't matter if they're Tesla or a public service, the further away the bulk of its mass from the outside environment. And that's pretty much uh, inescapable law mm -hmm. of surface and mass. And I think it applies to organizations. So um, one thing we know, we mentioned Uber before, you know, Uber is, it's, it's main, it seems its main thing it's really good at is burning through vast amounts of um, VC cash, <laughs> you know, so, so it may seem really successful, but is it really? Um, to what degree is um, Tesla, which is another famous loss-making company, um, actually successful? What's, what's maintaining it? What's, where's its sustainability? Where is its center of gravity? Where is its organizing axis? That's what I'm interested in. I'm not. In, I'm not. I'm less interested in our ability to pump something up with lots of money and commodi commodities. That's just. A, a, that's just the extractive economy in another guise. I'm interested, and this is going to come back to Hidalgo and his concept of that. That said, that out of equilibrium system in a steady state. That's what produces information. So it's the steady state that I'm interested in which we can see here is the sustainability argument. It's, it's got to be able to run itself without destroying large parts of the uh, environment and without sucking huge amounts of cash. It's not as if, you know, the world, the world has many different ways of using cash right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do we really need to keep uh, pouring it into um, uh, sort of surveillance uh, uh, capitalism like we see with Uber? 
and I'll very quickly get off my soapbox before I <laughs> well, really dig into that one. <laughs> well, speaking of soapboxes, what you're talking about, your comments of sustainability, ironically, remind me of comments from Elon Musk, who, when yeah. he's talking about um, moving to a carbon-free economy, is basically saying that, um, I think, what's, what's the term he uses? It may come to me later. Um, that it, it's a, it, it is a phrase that proves itself that something that's unsustainable can't last forever. It's not a syllogism, yep. it's something along those lines. Um, and so he's arguing that we can continue burning coal and oil uh, unsustainably, but not forever, because it is simply unsustainable. We're, not, we're either going to ruin the planet or run out. And yep. so this idea that, that, um, that we should search for an equilibrium, I think makes sense based on that argument. But I guess... As, as somebody who's fascinated by uh, the pursuit of innovation and innovation always being this tilt forward, not an equilibrium, um, mm -hmm. how do you wrestle that apparent contradiction that we're looking for a company that has equilibrium and yet is moving forward? Uh, I would just jump back to Hidalgo. We're uh, an out of equilibrium system in a steady state. So yes, uh, these, these organizations we have are out, out of equilibrium. We do want them falling forward. There does need to be some, some degree of um, uh, forward progression, but they're in a steady state, in other words. So they're wobbling, right? They're mm -hmm. wobbling. But how, how big is the wobble and how little is the wobble? Um, it's a terrible um, phrase, but I'm well, going to stick so with it. Would, would, Enron, <laughs> would Enron be an example of something that wobbled too far? Oh, that was, yeah, for sure. Or um, maybe VW Dieselgate where the, the oh, checks and yeah. balances aren't in place. Yeah, well, VW, that, that was just pure cheating. Um, and Enron, of course, was only able to be success through, successful through um, a, a colossal assurance and governance failure. So it tells us that, um, it suggests that if there does look like there's runaway success, someone somewhere is paying too much and someone somewhere else is earning too much right. um, from that. Yeah, okay. I, it, it, that's, that's one of the things that I look at. And I'm not, I'm not uh, jumping into this uh, from a liberal perspective. I'm just, and again, in risk, one of the things that we look at is who's paying for this? Who's, mm -hmm. who's picking up the risk tab and who is shifting the risk? Takes right. us back to Uber, right? They're, they're, um, they ship a ton of risk and uh, do really well as a result of it. Sorry, I've, I know I've missed your first question. What was that again? Well, that's all right. Well, we're bouncing around. And, and also, I, I'm delighted that we are free to leave the subject of data governance when we want, because I think <laughs> yeah. this is a very interesting conversation for me. Um, and and I, I, we've talked about Tesla and Uber in the same breath, but I treat them, I, I am, I, in my analysis, I see them as two different cases. Uber is a winner take all. We will burn money uh, to overwhelm any potential competition, much like Amazon does. We don't have to make a profit. We just have to get bigger. Once we're big enough, nobody can compete with us. Whereas Tesla, it's really hard to imagine one company, one car company ruling us all, right? It's pretty easy to start a, a, 
especially electric vehicles are relatively trivial to make if you know how to make the software and the batteries. I look at the money poured into Tesla as a worthwhile investment in getting us from here to there, here being mm-hmm. it's cheaper. And if you, know, if you and I buy a car, I don't know if you have an electric vehicle, I do not. It doesn't make sense to me financially, but the money poured into the electric vehicle industry is changing the math a little bit to get us to the point where it does make sense for us to have electric vehicles. And once we're in that position, it's sort of this, this idea that if, if everybody was driving electric cars and you said, I found this great way to burn fuel, well, everybody would say, well, well, that's, well, what about, where am I going to get gas? That's ridiculous, right? <laughs> but the clean sheet of paper is, is, is not there. And so we're biased towards the status quo. But if the status quo yeah. is electric, so the money poured in is to get us from this dirty sheet of paper to another dirty sheet of paper that's, that's preferable. Yeah. And so I'm, I, I don't know if I'm, I'm way off topic too, Rohan, I hope no, you don't mind. Right. but I, I do see I a it. distinction between those two cases. Um, do you have any uh, thoughts on that or should I move to the next question? No, I, I got you. I got you. Um, we can stay relatively safe in this um, Tesla and SpaceX um, produces physical order. So they produce information. So they're, they're producing a thing. Mm. Uh, Uber um, is mm, commodifying labor. Uh, Uber creates people in a can to do mm-hmm. things for you. It's, 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 Uber is the servant economy. Right. There, there's, there's, there's nothing flash about that. We've been doing it for 30,000 years, uh, making servants of each other. We just happen to be doing it in an app. Um, and the, the crossover happens when the Uber driver is driving a Tesla. Right. That's right. right. Yeah. So well, going to your point is that, um, yes, we do want to see, we do want to see the likes of Tesla being successful because we do want to see the, 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 the large infrastructure necessary to drive electric vehicles in our environment because we know that that will be a tangible step forward and away from extractive fossil fuels. Yes, I have a hybrid. We were going to look at electric, but there's no infrastructure here. Really? No I, I'm surprised. I, I would have well, anticipated New Zealand be, being more like Norway than Canada. No, we trade off our clean green, but we know it's a dirty secret. We're not that flash. Uh, also, um, we're, we're 5 million people at the bottom of the world. You know, it, 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 takes, it takes quite a lot for us to build this infrastructure up. Uh, we're not necessarily that um, w- awash with cash. We have to make sure we, um, we, we invest wisely. And so maybe the next time that we go to buy a car, um, yeah, we might be able to go full EV. But at the moment, infrastructure is not there. So we have to, you know, we, mm, I'm, we'll put it this way. I'm using my consumer dollars to send signals that further investment in electric infrastructure is good. So you've indulged me with all this talk of electric cars. And I have a question that I think ties us back from electric cars to Hidalgo again. There's been a lot of talk of Apple building a car, which strikes me as as a terrible example of firm bite adjacency. Um, Building a car is a completely different exercise from building a phone or a desktop or a laptop or a printer. 
do you think it's a bridge too far using Hidalgo's um, reference points or analysis? No, um, they're not phones. They're um, mobile computers that enable us to make calls and take photos. Um, there's, it's just a car is a, well, most cars these days are as large as data centers were 10 years ago. They're data centers on wheels. We make calls from our data centers on wheels. That's what Apple does with its stuff. Um, I, and remember the first big breakthrough was the iPod. That was a music player. That was the really big one. We, we forget how big the iPod actually was. So it was a, it was a big step forward. So um, going back to your question, um, look, uh, go for it. Have a crack at it. See what you come up with. Um, you're going to burn a truckload of money, but that's what we're doing anyway. At that's least. what they have. <laughs> that's what they have. The reason why you have a lot of money is actually you've been able to, over time, capitalize on the trust dividend that's implicit in, your phys- in the design of your physical products. And this is, this, is, this is one reason why Apple is quite interesting, especially with their positioning with regards to Facebook right now, that, that, that little that little um, dust up. That's, yeah. yeah, that skirmish between Zuckerberg and Cook. It's very interesting to watch right now. And of course, all the players in um, Tim Cook's area, especially after Facebook face planting in Australia. <laughs> well said, yeah. 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 So um, go for it. Um, I think it, they've, they've, as they move into the, if they move into the car area, we know they can make stuff. We know the stuff is pretty cool. And that we know that they know that getting into autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles is really hard. So good on them. Best of luck. Um, we'll, we'll see where it goes. Sure. It's it's a it's a fascinating question of whether they'll do it. I, I will I will say because of um, a an instinctive notion of adjacency that um, I I had before you exposed me to Hidalgo's work, I was thinking along the lines of Apple's never made anything that couldn't be made alongside the previous thing it made. Yeah. Cars are not going to fit in. Now, ironically, of course, the, the, the name escapes me, but the big uh, iPhone assembler in China has already, has already announced it has plans to start building the underpinnings of electric vehicles. So maybe they aren't as far apart as I imagine. Yeah. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, the next topic, the next thing that you've exposed me to is something called the capability approach, first proposed by Amartya Sen. Um, yeah. It's been described as an alternative to GDP for measuring economic performance at the national level. Can you talk about how this connects to this idea of a just and abundant future. What, what does it contribute to that and thought process? Wow. Okay. So this is a big leap. So we've gone from mm, technology, relatively easy thing to discuss to um, how we view justice. <laughs> this is what Amartya Sen, uh, this is what is, a lot of his work is about is how we how we approach 
this concept of just and what is just and unjust, the um, the capability approach. It's it's all about judging and comparing overall individual advantages. It doesn't propose any formula about um, how we use the information about these advantages. It's important because one of the things that we're seeing now in the data governance world, uh, the whole AI ethics debate, at the core of that is a whole bunch of different cultures in a sense rejecting the, the default that we've had from the 80s onwards. And back in the GFC, the Global Financial Crisis 2007 and, co, uh, and um, Stiglitz, uh, Joseph Stiglitz, Amartya Sen and John Paul Fatusi were tasked with looking at how we measure economics. And from that came these two things, A, the well-being approach, uh, you know, we probably should be counting the well-being of people when we are doing our economic work. And then Sen comes in with the capability approach. There's a different, there's just different ways of looking at the world. It's important because the way we look at the world translates into how we create stuff. So it does loop back. The, um, the capability perspective is concerned with the plurality of different features of our lives and concerns. So this is why I said that the topic, we just made this massive jump because now we're, now we're in, in, in data world, we're dealing with issues of um, race, gender, or in my part of the world, uh, decolonization. The, um, the, the, the perspective, okay, this is why it's important in data governance. One of the things that we have to do in data governance is what I refer to as, quote unquote, preserving a multiplicity of views. Now, uh, this is not just about avoiding monoculturalism. It's also about preserving scientific integrity of different ways of looking at the world. And the capability approach or justice's capability looks at both social and functional usefulness. So as soon as we're talking about social and functional usefulness, we get a different lens on the stuff that we're building and the rules that we're setting around that. This is one reason why there is um, a rejection of, uh, this would be a terrible term, say Americanism. Um, one of the things that we see in technology right now is a rejection of Silicon Valley, uh, techno-solutionism, but in behind that is basically sort of a bit of a rejection of, you know what, America, we love you a lot, but um, in this particular case, we don't love you so much and we just don't really want to take this into the way we work. This is, this is going into really deep, deep stuff with regards to our societies and our communities. And this is why the work of people like Sen um, is helping us articulate different ways to govern um, and make decisions because this is the thing we see. I'm about to finish my extended spiel in a minute. The thing that we see with the um, uh, black women in AI is a really good example. 
uh, all they're doing is they're saying, hey, man, literally man, white man, um, shut up a bit more and let me speak. And it's stressing our, it's challenging our ideas of uh, who we are and, and the invisible norms that we work to. So uh, I'll pause on that. Back to well, you. Well, I think, so tell me if I'm approaching why you raised both Hidalgo and Sen. It seems that Hidalgo is constructing ways of analysis, of analyzing a, an economy or even a, a person's um, opportunities, you know, the agency for both individuals and firms and even countries with, through the lens of economic opportunity. And Sen is saying, and this actually comes to one of the laws you've exposed me to, we'll talk about later, which is this idea that if all you do is, is analyze something based on one metric, you can pervert the system in favor of that metric and not yeah. get what you truly desire, which is abundance and justice for all. Yeah. Am I, am I approaching why you, you would leap yeah. or, or yeah. transition from one to the other? Yeah, man. Uh, spot on. I think that they're a lot closer than we think. So Hidalgo, um, we find this in the area of his book where he analyzes trust, but uh, he basically says, this is nothing new, uh, economies are socially embedded. You know, e economies are built with a whole bunch of pre-existing social links. Um, they're not, they, they don't exist um, in space uh, external from humans. They're, they're an expression of who we are. And so then Sen is saying, you know what, if we expand our identity of who we are and the things that matter, um, then we, we can carry them into the economies that we produce, that, 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 that emerge from our interactions. Ergo, we should be able to take a Sen critique and analytic into Hidalgo, i.e., we should be able to make clearer decisions uh, around the economies we produce by the extension of the social ideas that animate the societies and communities that are embedded, that embed the economy. <sighs> there you go. I got well, it out. I've, I've tried, I've <laughs> tried this analogy before with another guest. Um, uh, and it's the idea the, the, the popular notion of logic comes from the Vulcan character Spock in Star Trek, who will oh, yeah. occasionally say something that sounds logical on the surface, but if you really reflect on it, it's only logical if you agree on the goal. So yeah. if the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, that's only if we've agreed collectively that the collective, uh, the fate of the collective is more important than the fate of the individual. And this is, of course, yeah. the great tension between, you know, having a, a strong government and taxation and at the other extreme, having um, uh, what's the term I'm looking for, where it'll come to me in a minute. Um, sorry. The, right. the, you almost have no state whatsoever and it's all fend for yourself. And that's the best way to get the best results for everyone. It, not egalitarianism. It's something it's, it'll come to us. Yeah. Um, no worries. So anyway, setting that aside, 
I've always thought that when the, the Spock can only be logical if he has a goal and that goal doesn't necessarily come from law. It, it can't come from logic. But, Correct. And so Sen is not a, a logical analysis. It's an effort to embrace what we want. And then you can build logic on top of that using Hidalgo. Yeah. If you want this, yeah, then sure. this is how you go about it. Yeah, for sure. Um, there is a difference between logic being logical and being rational. Hmm. So we've uh, actually, we're, we're now entering a different field and this, this, this field um, is around, uh, well, they, bleh, 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 bleh. what to do and what is true are two different aspects of rationality. The first, what to do, is what, um, what you just sort of touched on for Spock's logic. It's called instrumental rationality. What is the smartest thing to do right now? Epistemic rationality sits behind that. It says what is true. So if you are an anti-vaxxer, your instrumental rationality, what to do, is different from someone who isn't. Your epistemic basis for doing things is different. What you just touched on and what with regards to what we're talking about with sin is there is a third element behind what is true and it is what is worthy of pursuit. Because once you have a clearer sense of what is worthy to pursue, then we, we apply science to the affected area, we identify what is true, and then it, it, what to do writes itself. It's obvious. And so this is this whole thing, sorry, of digging into not just um, the usefulness in science and helping us understand the world better, but give us some goals that are worth pursuing. And this is many parts of the world, but particularly in the global South, this is one reason why we're seeing a rejection of the, um, the ethics and mores from the 80s onwards. It's just... It's just not, a, it doesn't create that pleasant a world to live in. So when you talk, when we talk about that, what you were saying earlier, it reminded me of a perfect moment from the Simpsons where we can all find examples of philosophy, I believe. And it's when Homer and Marge were arguing about whether he should steal cable. <laughs> and, uh, he, he, he goes on a long discussion about how it's so easy. I just climb up the pole and everything. And, and Marge says, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying it won't work. I'm just saying it's wrong. And Homer goes, well, if we agree, why are we arguing? <laughs> <laughs> Classic, yes. Classic. Um, yeah, Homer, instrumentally rational. Marge, epistemically questioning. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you for putting a bow on that. I like that. <laughs> so let's turn our attention now to three laws that influence data governance. And what the first one, Ashby's law, is described as the first law of cybernetics. And it frustrated me to a great deal to find that there were not second, third, fourth laws of cybernetics. Did I just fail at Googling or is there some reason why there's only one? Okay. 
Yeah, uh, you will. F- the, the the closer you approach Ashby and Co, uh, the more likely you are to find your answer there. That, that start with the first one and keep moving. Okay. How, about, how about that? <laughs> the the thing is, it's all about how you question. Um, so I've just I've just realised that my um, I've just been signed out of my Google, so I, I don't have my Ashby's law in front of me. Well, let me read it out because I did take a note. And maybe this is the wrong version, but uh, the one I found and probably from Wikipedia was a stable system needs as much variety in the control mechanisms as there is in the system itself. Yeah, it's the, that's the law of requisite uh, variety. This was one of the things that um, really got me uh, amped with um, when I was working with the labor regulator here in New Zealand is that we just did not have a useful um, a large enough set of options for the, the, the things that we were trying to manage. So I'm just bringing my notes up again. And the, there it is, Ashby's Law. I rewrote it as um, when I was working here at, at MB in New Zealand, the effective limit of a regulatory system is set by how well the regulator can model and simulate the regulated system. That's how I summed it up. So um, very simply, as we as regulators and governors are confronted with increasingly um, sophisticated uh, area to govern and regulate, we have to um, improve our tool set quite a bit. We have to have a lot finer control. The problem is that the constructs that we're analyzing from don't really recognize uh, finer levels of control, um, partly out of ideological um, uh, reasons, because we we go, oh, that's okay, the market will sort it out, which has been fairly true for the last 20 years, but we're now we know in data that the market can't sort itself out. So then people are going, oh, this is terrible, government, you must, you must save us and regulate. And then that's when Ashby's law kicks in. Uh, the, the, uh, the leaders of a nation will say, okay, public servants, uh, do a better job, please. And that's when public servants goes, oh, damn, you know, we've only, got, we've only got a couple of tools and we need about 30. Think of it like, um, if, you, if you ever walk into a carpenter's workshop, the number of hammers, just hammers, is amazing. Just the fine-tuned control they can get over a, with such a simple tool. And that's the sort of metaphor I'm, I'm, I'm looking for here. So um, can I try another analogy? And, uh, and I'll, t- I'll tie it to another, uh, sort of a real-life thing. Um, probably in New Zealand, do you ever find yourself heating your homes? Does it get cold <laughs> enough? Oh yeah, that's a that's a that's a long tale of woe here in New Zealand. Okay. But yes, you have yes. hot and cold. Okay, so in Canada we have furnaces. The, the typical house has a furnace and a thermostat, and the furnace blows hot air through registers through ducts uh, throughout the house. And yep. you have one one element of control, 
um, yep. which is a thermostat. And there's all kinds of complications to how thermostats really work, but typically they'll just turn on when it's cold and turn off when it's, yep. when it's warm enough. But that doesn't mean that every room in the house is the same temperature or even close to the desired temperature. There's all kinds of yep. vagaries like sun exposure, wind exposure, insulation, how far you are from the furnace. So yep. you, you, uh, in many countries, they'll, they'll have, um, different systems, maybe electric heat, and it'll be per room and you'll have multiple thermostats, multiple. Yep. And so I think what you're arguing is, and I'll, the reason I wanted to, to have a moment to tie this back to something else is we talk about things like the inflation rate as being one, one datum that affects us all the same. Yep. But if you have a more fine-tuned analysis, you can actually say, well, Tim and Rohan's inflation is quite different. Yeah, and they sure. may vote differently depending on what's going on around them as a result, if they only knew. Yep. Yep. That's a good, that's a good um, metaphor for Ashby's law. I think I liked your um, finer, finer control of how to heat the house. Uh, and then your second follow-up point is this. Yes, this concept of inflation does affect us, but it does affect us in different ways um, for as long as we stick with um, this uh, uh, a single undifferentiated view, we can't actually see the the the, the varied impacts. Uh, if we're interested in regulating for those varied impacts, we have to create a finer tuned view. And you said that you were uh, influencing. I think you said uh, legislation in New Zealand that um, you saw the importance of having a more fine tuned approach. What, can you talk a little bit about what that example was, or is that confidential? No, no, that's fine. That was um, that was again back at the, the time when I was looking at um, uh, digital uh, regulation of digital labor platforms, and my observation of Ashby's law then was um, there was just no way that we were going to be able to, or anyone really doesn't matter New Zealand was going to be able to effectively regulate against um, the, the situation I was looking at was gig economy and digital labor platforms with the controls that we had. We have to uh, in, invent new controls. We have to invent new mitigations. Now, the legislation empowers that, uh, and we need that from the regulatory perspective, but the work still has to be done uh, in, the, in, the, in the lab, as it were, in the regulatory lab to figure out or to create um, different ways to regulate these environments. We see this. We see this in the antitrust um, work being done out of the states, and all of the uh, regulatory legislation, governance stuff coming out of the EU. The EU, in particular, they're realizing that we need a lot uh, finer control, and they are inventing those instruments as they go. GDPR was the, is the poster child for inventing a new instrument. So um, it, I just had a thought and, and I want to explore it with you. Uh, you. You earlier said something about how uh, these big platforms are quite opaque to regulators. And one argument in favor of uh, exposing more information, more data, more of what the algorithms look like uh, from companies to go government is that they can look at these things and, and regulate them. 
And there is, I, I, it just occurred to me that there is a, a, a precedent and that is tax law. You know, uh, yep. government companies are accustomed to, they may not like it, but they're accustomed to divulging all kinds of information about what's going on with their finances. There may be a future where they are, they are forced to be accustomed to sharing more about their data and, and data use practices. Yeah, uh, that's a great metaphor. Um, the tax and revenue system, I, I, I have a tax and revenue background here. Uh, it's a really good example of a rock solid, not rock solid, but a, a generally accepted um, high grade assurance environment. So it's, it's heavily governed. Um, it's, uh, and the output of that is a high level of trust and confidence. So it depends on the country, of course, um, in that uh, general system. There's, there's always avoidance and there's always schemes, but generally speaking, yeah, your, your analogy, I think, holds. The, um, we, we are used to governing our finances. If we governed our data to a similar level, we would be doing a lot better. And um, that's in both the uh, social and communi community side, but also the, you know, the e economics and chasing out those um, damnable transaction costs. I think if, 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 if everyone focuses on um, transaction costs with that, um, the social justice or the social acceptance lens in mind, we can do we can probably um, uh, get a few jumps ahead, I think. So let me move to the second law of cyber, or I, actually, I shouldn't say that. It's, it, it's not characterized. It, you offered me three laws and I automatically thought yeah. there were the three laws of cybernetics nice. because the first one was the first law of cybernetics. But uh, anyway, yeah. a, a, but, a rule that impacts data governance is called Goodhart's law. Yeah. And I don't know if you have your notes up, but I can read the I definition I found. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, these are my three laws to live by. So these are my three data governance laws. Um, they are a miscellany. They're, I've gathered them from various uh, fields because I keep seeing them. So they're your I favorite keep... hammers. Yeah, for sure. They're, exactly. Right. And I use three because um, once we get past three people have trouble you know, remembering everything's in threes you're completely right uh for sure man i don't i don't i don't like to go above seven i think it's uh, the human brain starts to crash once That's we nice. get above any seven things okay blah 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 good hearts law so i've rewritten it again in the context of uh, the regulator but quote unquote the current equilibrium of a measured regulatory system is determined by the balance and imbalance between the goals and the metrics of that regulated system. Whoa, there's a lot of stuff in there. Okay. Goodhart's law is, is quite well known um, with uh, statistics professionals. Every now and then you'll hear the you'll hear someone mention Goodhart's law, but it is not discussed well enough. Basically, um, we can have uh, over, overfitted or underfitted metrics. Sometimes you get really clear goals and um, crappy vague metrics. Sometimes you can get vague goals and really good metrics. Where, that, where there is a strong imbalance, the metrics will skew the system until the point that the system 
is successful because it um, produces certain metrics. And that's Goodhart's law. Now that is, uh, as far as I've been able to see, uh, a super tricky thing to manage. And the just um, for anyone who's listening that wants to um, get on the right side of Goodhart's law, it all comes down to getting really clear with your goals. You're always going to be able to get super clear with your metrics because that's what metrics do. Um, you know, they they lead us towards greater and greater and greater um, um, understanding of a problem by atomizing it, essentially. But goals are different. Goals are, especially in the in the public domain, um, goals are all around what a society wants. And this is one of the things that we keep we're seeing right now is this this big rejection of the the way we've set our goals and our the things that should be pursued over the last 20 years or so. So Goodhart's law, Ashby's law, those are the two, the first two, and the third one is Conway's law. Shall I jump into that? Well, let me, before you leave Goodhart's law, it reminded right. me, it reminded me of the Cobra effect. Have you heard of this? No, give it to me. Um, apparently, and I don't know if this is apocryphal, but um, the British in India were, were uh, tired of being attacked by cobras. And so they put a bounty on cobras. And sure enough, people showed up with dead cobras. And after a while, they got more and more cobras until they discovered that people were breeding cobras to get the bounty. <laughs> yeah. And so this is an example of, you know, the keep the end in mind, what you're measuring, yeah. what you it's almost McNamara, right? Yeah, the body count is the only thing that matters. And yet the way you go about getting the body count is undermining the, the ostensible goal of winning over hearts and minds. Yeah, the, the McNamara fallacy is a local example, I think, of good hearts, law and action. I can't remember it off the top of my head, but yeah, it all comes down to kill the bad guys, get body bags. And that, of course, um, shifted behavior in completely the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Um, the yeah the, the, the metrics will take over and in many cases they have and this is part of the reasons why, why we need data governance we're basically saying why are you counting that and then sometimes the the answer comes back as depressingly <laughs> oh we're counting that because that's what we count yes the you um know? have you heard of russ roberts and his podcast called econ talk I have not. Okay. Well, uh, this is yet another example. It's it, he, he tells it a lot and that is, and, and it's a criticism of how uh, economists often work. It's the idea of this drunk man under a street lamp looking for his keys. And somebody says, I can help you uh, look for your keys. Do you, do you remember where you dropped them? Did you drop them around here? And he goes, I have no idea where I dropped them, but the light's better here. Yep. That is that is classic. That's the streetlight effect. Yes. That is, um, and it is, A, it's very human, but B, it, it also describes um, the sort of default state of uh, the way we use information and data. Part of it is driven by um, the Silicon Valley idolization of big data mm-hmm. and how we uncritically accepted many big data concepts. Um but yeah, basically, we need much better street lighting. <laughs> right. In more diverse areas. So let's move more, now quickly yeah. to, the, to the last of the three. Bring it home All with right. Conway's Law. 
All right. Uh, yeah. Conway's law is, um, I can't, uh, sorry, I'm just funny. My damn notes. Um, okay. Conway's law, quote unquote, the structure of a system designed by an organization will be isomorphic to the communication structure of that organization. Uh, in other words, how we communicate internally uh, is a big constraint in the things that we produce. So let's just, we can go back to uh, Hidalgo here and basically, and a bit of sin, and we go, well, what happens if we change the communication structure of these organizations? And the, the, the follow on as well, the structures those organizations create can also change. Uh, in here, we see why public service agencies have a high um, failure rate with their innovation and investment processes because they behave like public agencies uh, and they can sort of only see things that public agencies see. It's also why um, in data world, we're looking so closely at the internal culture of organizations post the resignation of, um, or being resignated, uh, Dr. Timnit Gebru and Google we're looking at Apple, we're looking at Facebook. And one of the things that we're looking at is uh, in relation to the promises that you're creating, Mr. Mr. Zuckerberg, um, how, uh, how likely is it we're actually gonna get what you deliver based on how you work internally yourself? And so then the big leap takes us back to Firmbytes and Sen is that, well, can we blueprint a better way for an organization to communicate? Because if we do, Conway's law suggests or says that we should be able to build better structures in general. And that you know, when we, whenever we hear, hear structure, we should be thinking Hidalgo, physical order. So what this reminded me of, and this may be um, uh, a very basic example, but one of the things that intrigued me when I first began my career in computing was I, I took a course on Novell servers. And, you know, the idea of how we, how we structure shared folders and the impact that it has on an organization. It sounds yeah. like a simple thing, but if I create a folder where I'm sharing with you and I'm not sharing with someone else, I'm, I'm paving the way to communicate with you and undermining my communication with other people. And you have yeah. to be really mindful about how you structure that, how you nest things, um, what, what falls under a different nest, how far up and down you yep. have to go to get permission to get to things. That seems like the, the great challenge of organizing a company to me. Like if you look at a, uh, a uh, startup, it's usually a handful of people. It's pretty easy to communicate. You're all eating the pizza together. <laughs> and, and that's why startups fail or, or begin to crumble over time is because they, they, they may not be sufficiently mindful about how they construct what you're talking about here, which is the way of communicating within the company. Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, another example, um, public agencies communicate largely by using passive voice and putting the noun First, they privilege mm. the noun. Yet, people use active voice and privilege the verb. So, 
and what, this is one of the things that I think we see with um, startup culture, one of the first things that um, I'll find is these people privilege verbs over nouns. And this is one reason I think we see Conway's law in action. This is where startups are able to produce things completely differently from a, a larger organization, even if that larger organization has um, an innovation incubator. You know, this, 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 this uh, Conway's law really goes deep into, um, into our modern data and information um, economy, I think. So I'm not disagreeing. I'm just a little lost. So I, 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 I'm with you on the idea that the way you construct communication channels within an organization has an enormous impact. And I also agree that um, even just the act of uh, producing a document that says that we intend to do this verb versus we really think this verb, uh, this verb ought to happen or uh, more of a passive voice. It, it is, it is desired that, you know, that you take the person yep. right out of it. Yeah. How, but how, I don't, I'm not catching the connection between the two. It comes down to uh, how we discuss our place in the world. So the uh, passive voice noun focus, that takes the human completely out. And so um, we're able to think in terms of all the great things we can do. Um, don't worry about those pesky humans. Uh, and also we'll talk at them. We, won't, we don't talk with them. And the difference is important in our current world because people are going, screw this, talk with me, talk with me, see me. This is why data governance issues become social issues so fast because in order to um, fulfill the, the potential of the of of the data governance um, uh, movement, as it were, we have to engage with people and find out what they're worried about. This is why we get into things like trust. And on one side, people will go, okay, let's view this as an inert thing. Uh, let's chuck lots of data science at it and see what we come up with. And the results will be lifeless. Um, when we are uh, working with people using their language, We've got a dialogue happening. So there's information coming in and into the organization, information going out, question and answer is swapped. And what I like about the dialogue or the concept of the dialogue is that we keep exchanging question and answer until only one question remains. And then we go and solve that one. Well, interestingly enough, that leads me to my very last question in our dialogue. Um, <laughs> And that is what projects are you working on now and what impact do you, do you hope they will have? Uh, my favorite project at the moment is working with the AI uh, audit charity for humanity. Um, it is, um, it's part of, it's an extension of my work in data trust. It's been hmm, 2015, I started getting into this. Uh, it is, we're around 2016, 2017, 2018, everyone started piling in with their principles, their ethical values. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And our tech is going to be amazing. But we know that that's not going to be the case um, because these are largely just words. And we don't think that you're taking them into um, your organization. Uh, that's the criticism. And then the, organization, the organizations go, well, you know what? Let's do better. How do we do better? 
And that comes down to how do we instantiate the, our ethical frameworks and principles into what we build, into our data and AI, uh, AI tools. And the answer to that, I think, is this concept of independent audit. It goes, for me, it goes back to this issue of transaction costs. Uh, independent audit helps um, bridge, bridge the gap that, is, uh, that has emerged between organizations and society. And that's what we do with For Humanity. Uh, it's volunteer-based, um, expert-based, and we, we're looking at the, the multiplicity of these uh, AI systems, and we're basically just asking ourselves, how the heck do we audit for it? So let, let's say that we've got a really cool CE and that he wants, oh, sorry, there was my, there was my gender bias. Um, <laughs> and they say, oh, okay, we want to do better. How do you do better? It, it will always come down. It is always going to come down to your assurance function, which is fed by your audit work. It's the only way. Otherwise, we are still, we're always going to be locked. And he said, she said, and oh, I'm doing this for your own good which if it's coming from Apple or the government goes down like a cup of cold sick. No one wants to be told that now. Definitely valuable work. My guest <laughs> today was Rohan Light. Thank you, Rohan, for being my guest. Oh, kia ora, mate. It's been a, a, a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, all the articles we mentioned in the show will be in the show notes along with Rohan's contact information. My name is Tim Hampton, and you can reach me at tim at unusuallywellinformed.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you will subscribe and join me for the next show with another unusually well-informed leader in business and technology. Thank you for listening to the Unusually Well-Informed podcast. The opinions expressed by the host and guests on the Unusually Well-Informed podcast are their own and do not reflect that of their employer or any other affiliation. 